Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the last question. It is Thursday, May 5th, uh, almost 8.30 p.m. on the East Coast. And uh, yes, I'm about a day, day and a half late. Uh, these episodes normally come out on Wednesdays, but but really the goal is weekly. So if you're doing the math, if you're paying attention, if you are upset that the episode didn't come out on Wednesday, I'm sorry. <clears throat> but um, the goal is to share something with you, to come back to you with a with an episode about once per week. Um, and I don't want to waste your time either. And so I've been thinking about a number of things. Today is going to be a solo, another solo episode, by the way. I've been thinking about a lot of things this week, as I'm apt to do. I don't actually know why I say that every time, because that's always the case. Um, but this week, I'm going to talk about a, a, a variety of things, a few things really that do connect to each other. They may though they may not seem like they do. And uh, we'll start with a story. And uh, I'm going to talk through a bit more about my transition experience, and particularly my transition experience part two, which uh, is occurring as we speak, and, and really has been occurring the last couple of months. So I'm going to shed some light on what happened professionally, uh, when I lost my job slash had to resign from my job two months ago. Uh, almost two months ago. Kind of what drove that, I will keep some details private for obvious reasons. I'm going to do my best. I'm not going to name the firm, um, although there's probably many of you that already know who it is because I've already talked to you about it or talked about it in a different context. Um, but for anybody who's listening to this episode as their first episode, uh, or if you don't know me, or if you're otherwise unacquainted, um, you know, of course, take this for what it's worth. But one of the conversations I had this week that really got me thinking, and it was about stuff I had been thinking about and I've written about before, um, but I was confronted really with someone asking me the question to which I could provide an answer I have thought through before, but I've never presented to another person before. Um, and it was interesting. Part of it, we were we were limited on time. Um, we both had something else to go do, and so. But the but the question was around, not so much military transition, but career transition. How do you know when you're doing the thing you should be doing, right? Particularly if you're in the military or you've left the military recently. Um maybe you also are having trouble separating your individual identity from whatever your career field was, whether you call it an MOS or an AFSC or a rating or whatever it is, whatever that job description or that technical description is of the thing you do every day um, on active duty or as a reservist, especially if you are on orders often, um, you know, if your individual identity is, is wrapped up in that job, the number one thing that I struggled with and am I think better about and better at now, but it, it took me a long time was separating who I was from what I did, uh, particularly for someone who went to college, planning on joining the military, joined after college. And that's really the only full-time career level profession that I have experienced until recently. So, um, so I'm going to get into that, and then we're going to talk about social media, and then we're going to talk about one of my favorite psychologists to read and to listen to. His name is Jonathan Haidt, teaches at NYU. He's a social psychologist. He's been writing, teaching for a long time, since the mid-90s, um, but he may be best known to you as author, co-author of the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, which came out, I believe, in 2016 on the heels of a 2015 article in the Atlantic by the same name. Um, he and his co-author, Greg Lukianoff, presented a lot of evidence to suggest that uh, social media, while an inanimate object, cannot be the root cause of our ills. Um, our inability to harness it uh, is or could be at least that's the case he makes there's plenty of evidence to it i'm not going to be able to do the entire argument justice but um there are a couple of threads here that i'm going to tease out 
and they do connect to not just my transition, social media, um, and also this thing called personal branding, which has rubbed me the wrong way for a long time, and but I couldn't put my finger on it. There's there's several of those things in the world, concepts, ideas that that I kind of I'm not comfortable with, but I can't really I can't say why I can't point to it or pin it down, and so it's tough for me to disagree with somebody or to say, yeah, I don't really like that idea because, you know, invariably the question is, well, why not? I'm like, I don't know. I just don't. And, and I know that's not a fair answer. That's I'm the first to admit that that's not a fair answer. And so I tend not to get into the conversation. Um, when I'm wearing a jacket down in the recording basement and it's warmer than I expected. So let me settle myself here. <clears throat> okay. Uh, I think I've talked before, um, and I know I've written before about uh, the narrative in the subconscious. So if, if you read any psychology uh, or philosophy for that matter, uh, if you read any of my stuff, certainly I appreciate it if you do. I've talked in the past about this idea that the, the neocortex, which to the best of our knowledge, which to be fair, is not very deep the knowledge or the neocortex for that matter to the best of our knowledge the six layers of the neocortex which is really the surface of your brain but you have to think about the fact that your brain is really a whole mass of tissue folded into itself right so if you can picture a human brain if you've never seen a picture of it you know i, I would encourage you you can you can see a cartoon version of it there's actually a brain emoji right so if, if somehow you've never seen the image of a brain type in brain to your text messages, the emoji will probably pop up and auto suggest and that's close enough for now. In any case, three ish pounds, I think is the figure of this gelatinous mass um, is to the best of our knowledge, responsible, if not singly responsible for everything that is you uniquely, you who are conscious, you who are awake and experiencing the life around you in this very moment, you who are or who is processing the words coming out of my mouth into the mic and out through the speaker, whatever you're listening to on whatever device, wherever you are, the six-layered neocortex to the naked eye would be exceedingly thin. And that is evidently what we think where consciousness gets its day-to-day -day signals the electrical signals between neurons fire in that cortical area and those signals are what constitutes our conscious experience it what gives us it's what gives us the ability to make decisions to logic our way through something and it gives us what psychologists and neuroscientists call executive function right the ability for me to control my thoughts and control my actions and this is the part of the brain that psychologists and neuroscientists have told us for a long time does not fully develop until about age 25, which is a, is a totally different rabbit hole that I, I have been going down and intend to go down again in the future. Despite the fact that for a long time, a lot of research has shown us and has suggested to us that the logic engine and the decision-making engine of our brain is not matured in a physiological sense until about age 25. Despite that, we levy how many decisions on young people under age 25? One of the biggest ones I think that we really need to talk about and think about, and I'll probably get to this at the end a little bit, is going to college, right? I was not ready to go to college, and I've, and I've talked to so many people just in, in, in random passing and people who I tell, yep, I'm, I'm going back to teach at the college level. They're like, God, I wish I could have gone back to college like three years later, five years later. I've said before on this show, working with undergrads at age 34, 35, 36, when I was doing ROTC, that I would have given almost anything to go back to college then. I, I mean, I would love to go back as an undergrad now. You know, certainly there's plenty of reasons not to do that, but I know exactly what I would do. I know what I'd want to study. I, I'm sure I could still have a good time, but I could get my ass out of there in like three years because I know how to work and I know how to make use of my time. And I wouldn't be dealing with all the extraneous crap that 
an idiot 18, 19, 20 year old does. Okay, I digress, right? So the point is your neocortex, if we take it as given that that's responsible for the subconscious, that is six thin layers of neural tissue on the surface of your brain. Now, if you look at a brain and if you look at a cross section of it in a textbook or on Wikipedia online, you can find it in a whole host of places. You'll see that there is a whole load of brain matter that at this point is not associated with the consciousness, with, with your consciousness or conscious experience. So what the hell is it doing? Well, there are, there are things that we know about the, the deep, the deeper parts, if you will, of the brain, for one thing, the majority of neurons, best guesses are somewhere between 85 and 100 billion with a B, billion neurons, 85 to 100 billion neurons in the brain. The majority of those are not in the neocortex. They are below that six-layer surface region. Think of it like the Earth's crust, right? To you and me, digging digging for worms or digging a hole for flowers in the yard, the earth's crust is pretty damn thick, right? We're not going to get to, we're not going to dig our way to China. Like we, we may have tried when we were little kids and you definitely aren't going to get to the mantle, right? And into the magma chamber of any, whatever landmass. Okay. Point is earth's crust is pretty thick to us, but in the grand scheme, it is a super thin part of the planet as a whole. So this is your neocortex. It's responsible for a lot despite its relatively small volume, but then consider more volume, a vast majority of the brain's total mass is devoted to subconscious or unconscious functions. Okay, so, so you have to think about the fact that everything your body does is driven by the nervous system. So the fact that your blood flows still requires nerve impulses, it still requires signals between neurons to continue to move the heart muscle that I'm moving my hands right now because I've talked with my hands as far as I can remember that requires neuronal neuronal firing um, but I'm not necessarily I'm not thinking about where to put my hands when I gesture right it happens you know we might say naturally now, do I know that that's a subconscious versus a conscious activity? No, that's not my point. My point is the vast majority of things that you do and that your body does, particularly the stuff that you do involuntarily, like breathing, like experience fear, like the fight, flight, or flee response, or the, the fight, flight, or freeze response, right, driven by the amygdala, this relatively tiny piece of the brain relative to the rest of it. Those urges, emotions, the fear response, that's driven by subconsciousness, that's driven by brain mass that's below the conscious level, right? And if you think about it, there are things that you fear and you don't, necess you don't tell yourself be afraid and then you get afraid. You get afraid and then you have to train yourself either to deal with it to sit through it, to walk through it, whatever, or, or you don't, and you respond to the fear uh, with whatever the response is. You run away, you freeze, or you fight back. Well, to the best of our knowledge, the subconscious is also where you generate dream material, the subject matter of our dreams. And that might be one of the few times where our subconscious and consciousness interact, right? Because you, you have a sensation of conscious experience while you're dreaming, but it's not altogether there, right? It doesn't feel the same necessarily. Images seem realistic, but, but like the fact that you have a human face with an elephant trunk somehow is normal in this world, but it wouldn't be normal when I wake up, right? All these weird things that happen in our dreams for the most part, we still don't really know what dreams, the function of them. We kind of know when you dream relative to the sleep phases. So that gives us a clue. Perhaps we know that dreaming is, it seems essential 
just like REM sleep seems essential because when we derive animal subjects or deprive animal subjects, including humans, of that phase of sleep, it causes all sorts of detrimental issues, detrimental effect. So the subconscious is powerful. We really don't understand it. We barely understand what consciousness is. And there's a whole debate about what drives consciousness. Whatever we think we know about consciousness, I think we know far less about the subconscious. But there's another piece to the subconscious that I think is critically important, particularly for this conversation. If, if you are a person of faith, if you're a religious person, particularly if you're of, the, of Christian orientation, you are probably familiar with God's plan as a term, as a concept, as an idea. The idea that while you might have free will and decision-making over your day-to-day -day life, there is some plan you are fulfilling. There is something you're supposed to be doing. And interestingly, even if you are not of Christian persuasion, even if you are not religious at all, there seems to be this pull every person has to find out what they're meant for. Right. Meaning in life is a is a perpetual question. It's like the question or one of the few questions that we always keep asking. Kids ask why nonstop. They want to know what stuff means. And as we get older, certainly for a military transition scenario, we're sitting there trying to figure out, well, what the hell am I supposed to do now? I've spent five, 10, 25 years on active duty. I had purpose because the mission gave me purpose and my people gave me purpose. And it was really easy, frankly, to outsource all of this meaning stuff to somebody else. Now I have to generate this crap on my own and I don't know how to do this and I don't know what I'm meant for. It doesn't matter whether you're religious or not. That's not my point. But there seems to be, at least to me, <clears throat> these situations where I make decisions or I think about a decision or I do something that doesn't really make any sense except I can't not do it. Key example, prime example that I know um, uh, if and when my wife listens to this episode, she'll know is coming right away. 2018, we buy a house in Ohio with no plan whatsoever. I, have, I had yet to figure out a job here. I thought I was getting out of the Air Force in Vegas. My wife didn't have a job here. Uh, kids weren't in the picture yet. In fact, they were soon to come into the picture, but no kids in the picture yet, just the dogs. No plan. And I was convinced 100% we needed to buy a house in that year. And the counter arguments made sense. I'm not going to be out till 2019. Um, a mortgage is kind of a big deal, right? We're, we're not the types necessarily to run into big financial decisions like that, um, at least at that scale. And certainly not when there were many unanswered questions like, we're going to buy a house and then do what with it? We're going to rent it. Well, you can't use a VA loan if you're going to rent it. Okay, well, you can do it at conventional. Well, that drives a down payment. We don't really have the cash for a down payment right now. Housing prices are already inflating, right? 2018 was expensive. It's not like it is now, but it was certainly expensive. Long story short, we buy a house with no plan whatsoever. The offer we put in was not the best offer, but it got accepted because the the empty nesters that were moving out of the house, quote, wanted another young family to raise their, raise their family here. The offer was accepted, and 24 hours later, we found out we were having a baby. To this day, it's really it's tough to explain why I was adamant that we had to buy a house. If you're religious, you might have one answer. If you're not... I would love to know, in fact, what, what your thought would be, what your answer would be. And so uh, several months ago now, Jordan Peterson, who's a psychologist in Canada and is rather famous or infamous, depending on your, um, depending on your read of him, was interviewing Angus Fletcher. Uh, he's a professor at Ohio State who studies narrative and neuroscience, and he runs something called Project Narrative, which is a, one of the research centers on campus. And one of the things that Peterson said in the interview, it's a, it's a podcast from a while ago, and I'll, I'll try to link to it if I can in the podcast description. One of the things he said was, there seems to be, this is Peterson talking, there is a subliminal through line, 
operating inside every person. We, we seem to have a sense of what we should do or not do, or that what we've just done isn't contributing to some final end. And he, he said it almost as an afterthought. He, he just kind of said it on the side, and then they never talked about it again. You know, and they're talking about the power of narrative, the power of stories. Humans think in stories. These days, if you take a marketing class, you probably hear that same thing. Nobody buys the product. They buy the story around the product. Nobody, nobody buys from you. They buy you, right? The story you tell, blah, 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 blah. And it's powerful because stories are powerful. This is why people can be compelled and drawn in to fiction, right? To, to books, to movies. Um, we, we just, we watched Ratatouille tonight. It's a Disney movie. Disney, I think. Yeah, Disney movie about a rat who puppets this dude around cooking in a French restaurant. None of that makes any sense in the real world, but I couldn't stop watching it after, you know, I came home and they were in the middle of it. And then, uh, you know, I'd gone to the gym and I was like, I need to go shower. And um, my wife had the kids and they were just going to sit and finish the movie. And I couldn't. And I was like, no, I, I kind of want to finish this movie. I got really into it. It's about a rat who controls a dude by moving his hair around to cook stuff. None of that makes any sense, right? But the story is powerful. Our kids are obsessed with cars, the movie cars. It's a trilogy now, right? I get engrossed in it every time. I've seen every one of them, all three of them, 50 times each at least. We can quote whole sections of the movie. Um, I'm pretty sure the kids can, but we get engrossed in it every time. Um, and there's plenty of movies like that. You can probably think of one right now that you get engrossed in, and it might be an animated kids flick. It might be you know, a serious drama. Um, people get into the Avengers. We're into the Avengers. There's, there's all these examples of pure fiction and even stories that by and large don't make any sense. There's, they're not really realistic per se, but they are just real enough. And, and as Peterson might say, more real, in fact, than reality, because what they're uncovering is the real emotion and the real feeling and the real grippy part of life, and then jettisoning all the garbage that we just deal with day to day, right? If you were to follow me around with a camera all day, you'd be bored out of your mind because I'm living life like you are. I get up, I'm tired, go to the bathroom eat something, read in the morning, get some coffee, blah, 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 right? Hours and hours later go by. Tonight I'm recording. If you were watching me record, you'd fall asleep. I will close this stuff down, go upstairs, go to bed, right? Standard, standard day. So it's the peaks and valleys that we extract from regular life, and then we enhance it, and we give them additional color and detail, and we turn them into a riveting story that people pay lots of money to go watch multiple times or to read multiple times. They pay money to own it. They pay money to own signed copies and special editions of these things, right? Story is powerful. And then as an aside, Peterson says, there seems to be this narrative. There seems to be this through line that people follow. I'm like, yeah, there, yes. We, we still don't know what it is or where it came from. To me, it clearly must be an element of the subconscious because in theory, if it's part of your, your conscious experience, you'd be able to interrogate it in some aggregate fashion, right? I'd, I'd be able to look at this whole through line. First off, I would have figured out what the hell I'm supposed to do after the military, right? Instead of asking people, okay, take a look at my resume. What do you see? Right. And I'm not asking to be an asshole. I'm asking because I legit could not explain it. I was always apologizing for my eclectic background, quote unquote, because people look at my resume and they're like, well, military. Okay. So that must be cool. Right. Cause everybody wants to hire a vet supposedly. And then they're like, well, what did you do? Nuclear weapons. Crickets, crickets, crickets. Right. I've said this before. Some people don't even know we still have nukes out there. So let alone met somebody who dealt with them. <clears throat> okay. So anyway, if it was part of my consciousness, I'd be able to 
like mess with it, right? And kind of bend it and turn it around and look at it and, and even potentially change it. But I've, I somehow can't, you know, and then things happen. The, the stars align, as we say, or God works in mysterious ways, as you might say, right? So, so certainly the jury is out on what it really is, but it seems to be there. It seems to exist. So what does this all have to do with transition and that conversation I had? Well, the subconscious, regardless of what is driving it, where the core of it is, I think it, it no, it's not obvious, but I think it is relatively easy to conclude that if it has the majority of the neurons in our brain and it houses some of the most primitive parts of our brain, meaning the stuff that evolved first, that has to make it pretty powerful because it's had hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years to refine its functionality. Interestingly, and until recently, but we'll get to that. And so what I was thinking about talking to this one friend about transition and about careers and, and about, you know, how do I know whether I should go down this path or abandon it and go down a different path? And, and the truth is, I, I mean, I, I don't in the traditional sense, I don't have evidence necessarily, but I have this storyline that I can barely access that somehow just tells me this is not the path to be on. Call it a gut, call it intuition, call it the universe, call it God. Whatever you call it, think about it. Is it there or not? And if the answer is no, I mean, I would love to hear from you. If the answer is no, if the answer is yes, I would love to hear from you. And I would love to hear what you think it is. Um, so, you know, the, the question is, so I'll rewind the tape to April, 2021. Um, well, really even farther back than that, October of 2020, the plan for the better part of a decade had been to go to graduate school, earn a PhD, and then find my way onto a faculty, teach at the college level, and try to do my part, my very tiny part in writing the ship that is higher ed because we have a lot of problems in higher ed uh, and on the faculty and, and academic side we got some problems to fix so it probably sounds arrogant and pompous um, but that is where i feel like i'm meant to be so at the very least i'm going to try to do my part as small as that might be um, and be a teacher in a place where it seems sometimes most people don't actually want to be teachers. They would rather do research and write their books and do their own thing, which is cool too. I mean, I want to do some of that stuff, but teaching is it was my first love, not the research and the writing necessarily. But I don't know if you've, if you've ever looked at what it takes to be a full-time graduate student, you don't make a lot. Um, now, some stipends have gone up, because of inflation, cost of living adjustments and whatnot. But that at the time I was looking at being a full-time student, not a lot of capacity to take on part-time work and making the equivalent of 20 to 25,000 per year with a household, two kids. My wife works full-time, but it would, it would equate to 70 to 80%, uh, a 70 to 80% pay cut from where I was on active duty. rather drastic, hemmed and hawed for months. I think it, it, it puts some stress on my wife, rightfully so, or understandably so. And so in October, 2020, I said, you know, we, we talked about it, but I, you know, I was doing a lot of soul searching and I said, I, I can't justify it. It's not fair to the family. It's not fair to you. Yes, it was a dream of mine, but you know what? I didn't put ours, put us in a position to do it. I didn't save deliberately to have the, the cushion that we would need to do it. Decided against it. <clears throat> Decision happened pretty quickly. Deleted my application in the system and then was like, well, now what? 
And, you know, in some ways, yes, it's a liberating moment, but for me, it was largely terrifying. Going to grad school and studying international affairs, national security, that was, for the most part, all I had thought about doing. And so, um, you know, certainly long story that I will try to make a tad shorter, just a tad. You know, I, I get a recruiting note from a financial services firm about a webinar about a job as an advisor. And at, and at one point I had thought about financial advising several years before, but my assumption was you had to have studied finance or you have to be a certified financial planner or something, you know, and I didn't have the prereqs. I didn't study it. So I'd written it off, attended the webinar, that firm and I didn't really click, but I started to look at others talked to a couple of friends of mine who either worked with financial services firms or, or were clients of one, right? Just to try to get a sense of what the world was like. And then I had somebody recommend another firm to me, look into this one, really good, strong company, good benefits, good culture, et cetera, et cetera. I said, okay. Ultimately applied to three firms, um, made it into the interview cycle for two. And then the one, which took about seven months worth of, of interviewing and vetting, um, made me an offer and I, and I had a job secured, if you will, mid-March 2021. And I, to say that I was 100% ready and settled and excited in my mind would be a lie. But it's very easy, or it was for me, to be in that transition mode, really questioning almost everything and not in a healthy headspace. I've, I've talked before about suicidal ideation and, and, and all those feelings that I experienced 2020, um, notwithstanding COVID, right? Totally separate from COVID really, but so, you know, not a good time, mental headspace, stressful. And that's certainly the case for a lot of the people I know who've transitioned. So this is unique to me, but in my case, you know, I had people asking me, why financial services? Why are you going to be an investment advisor or broker or whatever you call them now? Um, and I told them the truth. I said, you know, there are a lot of people that I do know, some in the military, some not, but that don't transition or do something with their life that they want to do because they either don't have enough saved for retirement or they don't have enough saved or they don't have a good enough plan. There was no coaching available to them. They, they had nobody who really could help them with their finances. The military example is one of the easier ones. I know people and, and we were in this boat somewhat trying to debate how to separate and, and when and when to get out. Folks that feel stuck because for whatever reason, their decisions or external circumstances, it's usually a mix of both, right? They didn't save enough. They didn't have enough. They didn't have any guidance. They didn't have anybody who intervened. Nobody asked them a critical question. Regardless of it, they don't have the money. They don't feel secure enough to get out of the military. And so they stay in the military to their own um, detriment. Right. It's it's not necess it's not the best place to be for them, but they feel like they have no choice. It is a secure job. Pay is decent after you've been around a little while. Certainly on the officer side, it's better. Our enlisted folks do not get paid enough. Separate topic, but regardless, right, it is secure. There are benefits that are unique to military time, military service. Um, if you're in a good unit, your family's taken care of while you deploy. Your kids can be well taken care of if you're in a good unit or on a good installation. Plenty of good things about time in the military, right? And I, and I don't denigrate my time in the military, but there's also an ass ton of stress, plenty of bad bosses, people in the chain of command scared of the truth, right? There's all these stressors that come with military time that you kind of have to just deal with, but sometimes it becomes too much for people like it did for me. Anyway, I tell that story I'm, I'm telling that story and that narrative and kind of my rationale for why I would do this, which also includes a dose of rationalization on my part to talk myself off of a proverbial cliff. Cause I'm like, I don't know if this is a good, I don't know if this is right, but I'm kind of locked. I mean, I'm, I'm invested time and energy now, six months into a seven month interview. I'm, I'm neck deep. 
So, you know, people who knew me not in financial services are like, oh, yeah, that kind of makes sense. You know, you've coached a bunch, you mentor, you used to teach, right? It, it, you know, it's, it's a cool opportunity, I'm sure. And, you know, I'm sure you could be good. You know, generic, non-committal, but supportive. I didn't have anybody look at me and be like, well, that's horseshit. You're going to be terrible at it. Nobody said that. Uh, well, except for me to myself in the mirror a few times. But what was interesting was the response I got from advisors, right? So people in the industry, <clears throat> I would give them a similar, the same answer, same idea, military families, young professionals, college graduates. I talked to plenty of undergrads when I was teaching ROTC. They know nothing about money, TSP, 401k, all this stuff. I talked about money and investments and savings way more as a, as a teacher than I thought I would as a person not teaching finance, right? So I said, these are the types of people that I think I can reach, that I can help, whose lives I understand to some degree, right? I was 36, 35, turning 36. I, I would certainly help a 55-year-old, a 65-year-old, but you know, I can't necessarily relate to them as well. Stuff that to me seemed relatively obvious, right? Um, and the answer I always got back was something to the effect of, well, that sounds nice. That's great. Just make sure you pay the bills. I'm like, okay. And, and, you know, I never really got much of an explanation until after I got into the system, right? But in financial services, for the most part, it is a commission-based business. So you make money off of either selling products and, and products meaning like a stock, like you, you have someone buy a stock um, by your hand and you get a percentage of the money that transacts and that's a commission. It's a really rudimentary explanation, but that's basically it. Or ad advisory fees, which are becoming more common. And that is simply a static percentage of however much money is sitting in somebody's account. Right. So if you have $100,000 saved um, and I charge 1% a year, that's $1,000 a year deducted from your account. So let's say it's a, it's $100,000 and it stays that way all 12 months of the year, just for easy math. I take $1,000 off of that and that's my advisory fee. Right. Another rudimentary version of it. But so you know, if, if you're following along, think about how the incentive system is built. Some firms do better at others helping you onboard. You might get a supplemental salary. You might get some sort of boost. You might get marketing money, something to that effect, right? To kind of help you start from zero. You might get clients that are shared with you so that you can practice and you can earn some of the revenue from people that are already in the firm. But at the end of the day, I think in most cases, I can only really speak from my experience, but I, I, I only anecdotally know about a couple others. So I really can't even say most. In my case, my performance evaluation and the, and the unsolicited input I would get from my no fewer than seven bosses was based on exclusively one metric. How much money did I bring into the firm? So I spent the first three or four months taking uh, CBTs, what we affectionately call CBTs, computer-based training, online test prep to get licensed by the federal regulator and the state of Ohio to sell insurance, right? So, we, so in my case, we were dual, what's called dual registered broker, which means I, I help you buy and sell stocks and mutual funds and that kind of stuff. An investment advisor, which is a, a specific title for what's called a fiduciary, which is what a lot of people are asking for these days. Um, and that is a legal obligation to do what's in your best interest. Technically, brokers aren't under that same obligation, depending on the firm you're at, um, in case you didn't know. And then I could be an insurance broker, meaning you could buy life insurance from one of however many companies we worked with through me. And I would earn commission on that also. How much money moved into the firm through me? That's it. Well, 
the reality is most of the people I'm connected to by virtue of age, by virtue of my background, by virtue of my experience, they don't have 50, 60 grand sitting in a bank account doing nothing. But that's in fact the type of person I was supposed to be looking for. If that number sounds ridiculous to you, it did to me at first, but you may also be that person and that's okay. I, I, you know, I certainly don't begrudge you for it. Um, if you have $50,000 sitting in a savings account, not doing anything, yeah, you probably should consider other ways you could make use of that money to protect yourself against what right now is some pretty, um, uh, what's the right word, rabid? That's probably not the right word. We're going through some serious inflation right now. So if, you're, if your 50K is sitting in cash somewhere, which is really what a savings account is, um, yes, Fed has raised the interest rates, but you might want to think about something else. Anyway, I wasn't talking to a lot of those people. And I already had misgivings about selling in this environment. And the reality was I had a hard time reconciling or, or, or coming to terms with the fact that every single person, quote unquote, everyone is a prospect. So that means every time I walk into a Starbucks, every time I get on the phone with a buddy of mine, every time I meet somebody at random in a Panera, or every time a family member calls, I'm supposed to be thinking in the back of my mind, if there is an entry point to talk about finances and their investments and who they work with and blah, blah, blah. And I, and on top of that, <clears throat> we had a metric that tracked how much money we thought we would get from them in a particular, in a period of time, three months, six months, a year, whatever it would be. And we had to track it. And I was terrible at tracking it. And then one of my seven bosses asked me where the numbers were. And so I had to make some numbers up and I kind of took some educated guesses. But that led me to a really strange place where now I was mentally qualifying almost every human I ran into. And then on top of that, trying to figure out how much money they might have, which to do that in theory means having a conversation with them. And interestingly, I wasn't so much afraid of having a conversation. I was afraid of that conversation <clears throat> because my mind is going to try to solve the problem. And so I'm having a conversation with someone that sounds completely innocuous and it might be totally unrelated to money, right? I might be at Panera talking to somebody about how good this salad is. Or, I've, or I have had somebody, I mean, I was sitting at a coffee shop after my writing group lets out and I'm sitting there by myself working and I have um, a coffee tumbler sitting next to me and it's got the, the Crew SC logo on, it's our soccer team. Guy comes up, sits down next to me. It's one of those big common tables and he comments on the cup. He's like, sweet mug, where did you get it? I don't even remember where I got it. It's, it's pretty old. Chatted for a minute, big crew fans, cool. Yep, blah, blah, blah. They're in town this weekend. That was it. The official answer would be, I would need to talk him up and, and you know, vector him toward money. And then the other piece to it is I would need to assess him and figure out if he's the type of person that I would want to talk to or need to talk to. And it's tough to explain the sensation, but the language of narrative and story helps a little bit. I really felt as though I lived two different lives, two different people's lives. I would go to work and I had a pretty nice office and I would be this financial advisor or I would be at a coffee shop or at a brewery or wherever where I'm supposed to be or, or at a, a festival event in town where I'm supposed to be giving stuff out and talking to people and talking them up about their own finances. And I was this investment advisor guy. And then in every free moment when I'm legitimately not advisor guy or I'm home or it's the weekend, 
I would be distracted because I would be thinking about research and reading and, you know, what, how long do I need to do this job before I could maybe go to school part-time? Maybe by then there'd be a part-time doctorate I could do at OSU. Maybe I would do it online. I really hate that idea. Maybe I only have to do this job about 10 years, make enough money, save as much as possible so that I can <clears throat> got to a point and I, and I was doing this the whole time, but I didn't let myself, I didn't, I didn't let the two people, the two avatars or the two versions of me living inside my head, I didn't let them confront each other because I knew they wouldn't like what they saw and I wouldn't like how it turned out. I wouldn't be comfortable. And, and it, it's not true to say that I wouldn't like how it turned out. I think I knew how it would turn out and I wasn't ready to admit it because how it was going to turn out is how it turned out. I was not a fit for that job. I, you know, the, the charitable version is I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about personal finance either way. You know, I can do my family's retirement planning and, and money stuff. And I can, you know, if a friend asks me for advice, now I can just straight up tell them what I think and what company to go with. And I don't have to deal with trying to ask them to do business with me. I don't have to deal with any of that anymore. You know, so from a technical standpoint, I, yeah, I learned a lot. Yes. And I will use that knowledge, certainly for my family's retirement savings and all that stuff. But I had no business doing a job like that. I'm not that guy. And, and until recently, I didn't really know what that even meant. I've said it before. Plenty of people say that, you know, I'm not that person. That's not me. And I, and I came to terms with that. Finally, I let the, the two avatars fought it out in my head. And the advisor had barely a leg to stand on. The finance guy had barely a leg to stand on because he didn't want to look at himself in the mirror, let alone the avatar of the person who was energized by real things, real problems. And it's not, and that's not to denigrate somebody who's a financial advisor, right? There are people that do well, that mean well, that aren't assholes, that do care about you as a client. <clears throat> But I, I did not have the wherewithal. I did not have the business sense. I did not have the ability to reconcile all these weird pressures with what the firm said was our client first service model. I was living a life that was logically inconsistent and it, and it was not going to last. And it would have probably did me in mentally to a point where, you know, I, I wasn't I, I wasn't operating in a logically consistent fashion toward the end of my Air Force career because it seemed like everything we said we cared about, we didn't care about. And it was the same exact thing happening all over again. And so that's another time where I think, I don't know if I know what it means to live a logically consistent life, except I wonder if it is a life that is consistent with the storyline buried deep in my subconscious, this level of programming that I can't access, I can't tweak it, I can't change it. But for some reason, there is, there is something running that is pulling me in a particular direction, right? That is, that is trying to veer me off of this course. I'm on course right now for something to be a broker, financial advisor, you know, company man at this place. But there's, there's, there's this pressure trying to derail the train and pull it off onto a switch track or off from a switch track onto some other path. The best I can guess, it's that story. It's God's plan. It's what the universe wants for me. However you would like to interpret it, right? God's plan makes sense to me. And in fact, that was a question I had as soon as Peterson said those words, as soon as he had that aside in the podcast, I thought, holy damn, is that what we perceive as the plan? There's this narrative. There's a story running. It's like a constant tape because I'm old, right? A cassette, a CD, whatever it is now, MP3 zeros and ones or MP4 video running in our deep subconscious that is the story we will play out. And every so often we get a bump steer 
because we're too far off course. If that challenges your thoughts of free will and it makes you nervous, yeah, it, it, it challenges my thoughts of free will and makes me nervous too. But it's, it's tough to argue with in my case because I spent 11 months really nowhere near the storyline that I think is running inside my head. And uh, it, it's tough to describe how it feels when I think I am running that storyline, except to say that it's distinctive and it's noticeable. And it is a better feeling than the other one. So this conversation I had, um, this conversation I had with a buddy of mine talking about transition, you know, we, we didn't have time to go into it, but what I wanted to say to him is, because he's he's debating right now a couple of different career paths, and I think he's in a job. Maybe he doesn't like that well. I don't know. Um, and uh, you know, we're we're talking about stuff he's wanted to do, and 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 like anybody, right? There's there's a couple of jobs out there that he's wanted to do all his life, most of his life. Um, you know, sometimes military folks are that way you know, somebody who wants to fly airplanes since they're eight years old, you know, great. And sometimes they get to do it. Sometimes they don't, you know, in his case, I think he's got a couple of jobs that he looked at, thought about, and that he's been thinking about for a long time. Um, one of them is, is particularly tough and it might be tough to get into or to apply for. And so the, the question really is, do you, how much energy and time not just of yours, but of your families or your friends uh, or your parents, whoever's really invested in you other than you, how much of your time and energy do you expend trying to chase that thing versus uh, cutting your losses and saying, I can't keep doing this. Uh, you know, it, me, in my case, I'm 36, right? Two years ago at 35, 34, I said, I can't do grad school. It's too late, too old. I got a family and responsibilities. I can't just take a huge pay cut just to go be a student just because I want to. Now I'm on, I'm back on that path, but it looks different. It's configured differently. And I have, it's different this time. I won't go into the details, but you know, I, I basically, I'm in a much better place to in fact, pursue that dream. I just didn't know what I didn't know. And I didn't know a lot last time. But regardless, it's really hard to decide, right? At what point do you cut your losses and stop chasing a dream? What you think is the dream, certainly what is the dream, what is a dream for you? And it's, and it's tough for me to say, it, it's tough for me to simply give the rational answer, which is, you know, sunk cost fallacy implies that we have to keep going until the end of time because we've already put the time in. And I'm and I'm not a sunk cost fallacy guy, or I or I'm somebody who acknowledges it. So just because you spent the time and energy doesn't mean it's a waste, but it also doesn't mean you have to continue until your death, right? Maybe it is time to cut the cord. But that doesn't mean it's the right answer, right? Because if your storyline includes that path maybe the number of times you fight your way to it is part of the story. It might be the point, right? I have to acknowledge that while the last year has been really tough and really the last two years have been tough and I know I've made it tough on my family, tough financially, tough personally, tough professionally, tough emotionally, It's, it's tough to argue with the idea that I had to go through it to now appreciate the path that I'm trying to get back onto and in practical terms to disqualify something, right? A lot of people who talk about military transition, especially, but career transition generally, and you even see this in, in some of the bigger books, like, you know, What Color Is Your Parachute? That's a pretty famous job search book. It comes out, I think, every year. Sometimes the question isn't what do you want to do? It's what do you not want to do? I've gotten that advice countless times. Sometimes it's easier to disqualify than to qualify. 
And then maybe by process of elimination, you arrive at, at your best answer. So maybe part of why I had to go through that last year was to disqualify, in my case, a category of jobs whose prime motivator is money. Because let's be real. I, yes, I, I wanted to serve people's financial needs and help them and ask questions. But at the end of the day, the way those firms recruit you is by telling you within the next three to four years, you're going to be making multiple six figures if you do things the way the firm wants you to do them, right? Which might require you to compromise yourself and to compromise your integrity. I can't say that about every firm. I can say that about one in one person's case, right? This is an N equals one study. So there is nothing about this that implies that this firm is some evil organization or that somehow every other advisor at this firm is an evil person. I can't say any of that, nor do I want to. But for me, at this, per at this place, I, I hit too many ethical red lines and, and frankly met too many people I wanted nothing to do with. And it clearly did not fulfill the story in my head. Where I am now, I think, puts me much closer to that through line, to that narrative, to that subconscious storyline. Um, because what I think about for work is what I think about off of work. And while my wife won't appreciate hearing this, what I have told a couple people, including my, my friend that I'm talking to the other day about this transition question and about how much energy, energy do you expend, I said, what do you spend all your time thinking about? You know, what's the one thing that you think about, quote unquote, at work, if you're doing that thing? If you're not, what do you think about in your spare moments at work that you also happen to think about in your spare moments at home? Because <clears throat> whether you admit it or not, right, we're all distracted by things as much as I want to be present with my wife and my kids. And I really try hard. I still think about research questions. There's stuff that I'm working on right now, not even in school yet, but I know it's going to be stuff I'm working on. And I think about this stuff all the time, which is one of the biggest reasons I write about it. Whether you read my stuff or not, the, the writing helps me figure out what the hell I'm trying to figure out so that I can refine my question and, and get an answer that's going to be useful to other people. So for me, it's, it's tough for me to imagine doing something else. It's tough for me to imagine going to be a banker or an architect or landscaping or uh, operations management, which operations management and project management, the two like catch-all post-military jobs, right? I, I looked at operations management. You know, I, people look at me and say I was a manager, quote unquote, which I hate using that term. And then I was in an operations career field. Boom, easy. I, I, I don't know. Not, not interesting at all. I'm sorry. Project management, I actually thought it'd be interesting. Did one class. It was not interesting. Not to me. Doesn't mean it's not a good place to be. Doesn't mean it's not a good job. It doesn't tell my story. It could be all hokey. It could be all woo-woo, as they say, right? It's tough for me to prove. <clears throat> but I have too many examples of it, at least relative to my own experience, to discount the possibility that the storyline, such that it is, is real. And certainly, if it is deep in the recesses of my subconscious, that to me automatically implies that it has utility because it's in one of the oldest parts of our brain. It has utility and it is supported by the majority of neurons and some of the oldest, most evolved hardware. Um, not as in, you know, so our cognitive capacities are relatively recent on the historical evolutionary timeline. 
they haven't been around very long. So when I say most evolved hardware, right, the stuff that's been around the longest, the so-called reptilian brain, which that by itself is somewhat controversial as a term, but the bits and pieces of our brain that control the basest of functions, that might be where the storyline lies, where it's somehow programmed into us. And if that's the case, it not only has utility, it has serious power. No matter how it got there, no matter what con- no matter what material constitutes this story, this <clears throat> ultimately collection of nerve of neuronal impulses, right? No matter what constitutes the story, if it is sitting there lodged deep in our subconscious, it has utility and it has serious power. And that's very hard for me to overlook. And so how do you know when it's time to cut your losses and, and stop expending the energy when you think your story is telling you something else? When you think the story is changing direction, going in a different path, and it's impossible for me to know whether the answer to that is yes or no. But it, it is one of those times where you have to be instinctual about it, and that sucks, and it's hard to explain because it, it, because it's tough to have a rational conversation. By definition, uh, reasoning won't be enough, right? evidence-based reasoning through it won't be enough because it seems by definition you can't get to the story. So I I can't show you pictures and tell you this is why because five years from now, blah, 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 blah. But that's how I see it. That's how I perceive it. Um, I've been talking a while, a lot longer than I thought I would about just that piece to it. And there was a whole nother component to this episode that I was going to get to um social media and one of my favorite psychologists and personal branding and how it dovetails with this subconscious narrative idea <clears throat> instead of going on uh i'm going to hit stop here actually and i'm going to save that for a part 2 and we'll do a part 2 so you, you know i i would i would love to hear what you think I know I say this every episode, um, well, but I, I mean it, but I also say it every episode, so it may just sound like a broken record. I hope this was of use. If you're in the middle of a transition, military or not, if, or if you're trying to figure out whether you should be transitioning somehow between jobs, between life situations, um, Spend some time with just yourself writing about it, thinking about it, preferably both. Um, you know, if you have someone you can talk with who will let you ramble on uncontrolled, do that. Ask them for that time and do that. Grab a beverage if you're so inclined. Go out to eat. Just hang out on the sofa in someone's living room. It doesn't matter. But we, we refine our thinking by talking uh, and by writing. But, you know, writing can be a stressful exercise for people. All of us talk. All of us communicate using some version of language, right? For the most part, if you speak in the English language, that is one of the most fundamental things you can do not just to communicate day-to-day stuff like where's the salt and what do you want me to pick up at the store, but how should I approach this problem? How should I think about this information? What should we do with our kids in these situations? What does it mean to be a productive adult, a productive student, a productive citizen, Everything from the, the minutest, dumbest stuff to the most serious philosophical questions. The way we as humans refine what we think we know isn't by coming up with the answer alone. It's about talk, it's by talking about it with other people. 
which is something else that I will say for another episode. But, um, well, I'll just say this. That's why freedom of speech actually matters, right? That's why it matters that you are willing and able to say what you think, even if what you think is wrong, quote unquote. <clears throat> this is what we need students to do in school is ask the questions they have. And this is why you can't tell somebody that's a dumb question because then they'll stop asking and then they'll stop talking through stuff and then they won't learn anything and then they're going to be screwed up forever. So I hope this was of use and I would absolutely tell you if you are going through in your own mind a tough decision about transitioning, making a big change, or are you just trying to figure out if you're in the right place at the right time? Talk it out. Try to talk it out with someone else. Journal about it if, if you're that type. If writing helps you, do a voice memo on your iPhone. I don't care. Just You need to work it out out loud and talk it out. Just thinking through it in your head can, can do a lot, but it won't do the job. Um, making some changes in terms of what I share. Uh, if you follow the blog on LinkedIn, that's normally how I share the podcast. <clears throat> I have one more post left. I'm going to present a post next week, and that's going to be it. The last question podcast is continuing on. I've got more work to do in this medium. The last question newsletter on LinkedIn is shutting down after next week. And I am expanding what I write about and how I present um, ideas and how I intend to tackle some of the issues we do have in education and some of the problems I see uh, through the Substack platform and through other things. And so to include a, um, a, a subscription program where the money will go directly to an idea that I think we can leverage as a strong alternative to college to the traditional college model and something that would apply to career transition, military transition scenarios. I'll leave it there as kind of a teaser. I wrote about it in the TLQ newsletter from this past week. I'll mention it again next week, and then uh, it'll come up in decoherence and on the podcast here as time goes on. You know, I would certainly appreciate support, but I, I, you deserve more information and more details on what that is before I start asking people for subscriptions and for donations. And I don't even know if anybody would even be willing to support something like this because I, it's just me and, you know, it's a low budget operation. We've talked about that too, but it's a problem that I really can't stop thinking about. So in any case, plenty more work to do. Uh, I'm going to leave it there. 9.30 PM on the East coast, Thursday, May 5th. No matter when you listen to this, I hope you have or had a good day and you've got a good day or evening ahead of you. Um, you know, I haven't said this in a long time, but I really encourage you, maybe while you're having that long conversation with a friend about what you should do in life, try to have it outside. Leave your phone behind in a structure, in a building, lock it in your car, get outside, take a few deep breaths take a walk. Exercise can do wonders for our cognitive faculties. And just realize how much more there is out there outside of your social media feed. And then I'll explain that in the next episode. Uh, until then, have a good one. Stay safe. We'll talk to you soon.